What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. I'm not prepared to sit it out. And I used to say to her, if not me, then who, mum? And if not now, then when? I'd been battered literally for 24 hours in the run-up to that speech to change it, to pull it, to amend it. You know, I was starting to dither because the pressure was so overwhelming. We still have to take a loyalty test simply because a few individuals who may happen to share the faith of a billion people, of which I am one, have gone out and committed the most horrendous violence against our country. I just will not take that loyalty test anymore. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed. This podcast is all about going behind the celebrity to understand how they came to find their voice, what influences shaped them from family, school, favourite books or TV, to reacting to the changing politics of their country around them and thinking, perhaps something's not right, I need to speak out. Let us know what you think by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and tweeting with the Intelligence Squared hashtag IQ2. Saeed Awasi is one of the best-known female politicians in Britain. She's a Yorkshire woman of Pakistani heritage, a lawyer, and from an early age got politics in her blood. She first came to prominence when she ran as the Dewsbury candidate for the Conservative Party, facing a fair amount of hostility in a macho general election campaign in 2005. But she succeeded in entering government as a peer after Prime Minister David Cameron promoted her to the House of Lords, still only 36. She became the first Muslim chairperson of the Conservative Party. In recent years, she's become known for speaking out against what she says is serious anti-Muslim prejudice. She said Islamophobia has passed the dinner party test. The fascinating and changing way that you have chosen to use your voice over the course of your political career so far is why I'm so keen to talk to you. So thank you for coming in. If I could ask you first, how would you describe yourself in a sentence or so? Outspoken, awkward Yorkshire woman. <laughs> I'm constantly asked in public life, what is the biggest part of my identity? Is it because you're, you know, you know the question that I constantly, most Muslims in public life get asked, are you Muslim? Are you British? Are you? And I would say that I'm probably Yorkshire. That's probably what underpins most of my personality. And sometimes when 
people down here in London find you slightly odd and outspoken and weird. It's that's just the way we are. <laughs> See, I thought you might kind of give your title, your you know, your title in the House of Lords, the, your career achievements. But it's Yorkshire. It, it, it is Yorkshire. And I think it's, uh, I mean, the t I never use the title, which is, I, I suppose there's always a part of me which is always slightly awkward about it's the Baroness. title. Baroness. Yeah, it seems, um, I mean, it's, it seems a little bit pretentious. It seems outdated. It's, I mean, it's a, look, it's a real privilege to be in the House of Lords, but I'm not convinced that the day that for these titles hasn't really come and gone. And uh, and I'm also quite awkward about the fact that, you know, in the, in the House of Lords, you're addressed as my lady. And, you know, when you're addressed as my lady by the people in the canteen and in the tea rooms and by the attendants, I, it, it, I, find, I, I prickle. And it's probably the, the working class woman in me who finds it all a little bit uncomfortable. Well, let's go back to the start. What sort of child were you and what sort of home were you growing up in? So I was quite a docile child. My mum said that I didn't give her any trouble until I got into my 20s. I was a reader. I was obsessed with devouring, you know, book after book after book. Enid Blyton and Famous Five and Secret Seven and, you know, all the kind of childhood books. I was a huge comic reader. Um, there are lots of family photographs where we're all stood in a line and I've got my comic in my left hand. What so comics? It would be everything from Beano, Dandy. I mean, the, the kind of comics you grew up with. But there's always that little, there's always something in my, in my left hand where I'm trying to hide it behind my back, which clearly shows that I've been dragged into this photo and it's broken into my sense of what I was getting on with. And give me a sense of location. So where is this? And what's so this, the cultural um, So this is Yorkshire, uh, born and raised in a tiny little place called Dewsbury. I'm the second of five girls, born in a traditional Muslim, Pakistani migrant family. It was like, a, it was, I suppose it was a bit like a Jane Austen story. You know, it was like Pride and Prejudice, I think, in many ways. We had this quite overpowering mom who had a clear sense of what she wanted from us. A dad who was really quite fun and quite passive most of the time. And then these five girls, everyone who had a huge opinion and incredibly loud, noisy home where lots of discussion took place. You said your mother knew what she wanted of you. What did she want of you? Well, I, I always say that I'm now nearly 50 and I'm the generation of Asian women who grew up where both your career and your husband were chosen by your mother. <laughs> I mean, she set her stall out very early on for us. And now when I talk to her, she's in her 70s, and she clearly felt that she'd failed by not having a male child. And I remember by the time the fifth girl came along, lots of people came around to, to express their sorrow at what had happened. It felt like a bereavement rather than a, a birth. She definitely felt that she'd failed by not having a, a did, male child. How did it make you feel seeing that? I think because dad and mum in their own ways were very strong-willed, we saw it from the outside and we felt like there was a bit of a battle going on with the outside world. I think internally we were too focused on and what were we going to do about it? And so one of the strongest things that I heard from my mum growing up was you've got to be better than the boys. And she made it clear very early on that she expected all of us to go to university to bring her back a degree. She calls it her degree. She's got five <laughs> degrees. They're on her wall. We've never seen them. They're her achievements. Uh, she expected each of us to have a clear profession. So, you know, I remember being sat down and saying, you know, doctor, lawyer, accountant, pharmacist, teacher, whichever, you know, and, and that's what we ended up having to follow. So I you, got lawyer. You did lawyer. And, uh, and I think so, therefore, because there was such a huge expectation of 
what we could be. And I suppose we did have a bit of a chip on our shoulder. She had a chip on her shoulder. We did feel like we had to prove something. We had to find a way to, to matter in a way that we didn't when we were born. And we did feel that people who had huge male families somehow started off in life much further along the success line than we did. I always say that with with girls in that society, you're born on the wrong side of the balance sheet. So boys are seen as assets, girls are seen as liabilities, boys are seen as contributors, girls are seen as takers, boys are seen as carrying honour, girls are seen as carrying shame. And that right from day one, you're trying to jump to the other side of the balance sheet to say, I matter, I matter, and I have equal worth and value. What were your parents doing then when they came to Britain? So uh, dad came here um, as a very young man to work in the rag mills in Yorkshire in uh, the early 60s. My grandfather had come here in the 50s and he was working in the rag mills as well. And then mum joined him later on after she married and she was a traditional housewife. And then when I was born, mum says things got better because dad went from being a, a mill worker to a bus conductor and then went on to become a bus driver and then drove a cab for a while um, and then started a, a small manufacturing business and then made it into a huge success. What was school like and how far were there insults? Because this is, you're growing up in what, the early 80s? Yes, well, 70s and 80s. Late yeah. 70s, early 80s. School was um, was mixed in a way that I suppose the community that I was born and raised in now isn't. The town was less divided, I think. But the racism was there even then. Uh, people now say that the racism is there because the town is divided. And I say, well, no, the racism was there when the town was allegedly united. I remember children being taken out of the junior school um, that I went to because there were too many Asian kids. Uh, they were The white kids were taken off and schooled in a local pub, actually, for a while. Um, a pub which has subsequently been sold and turned into a mosque, actually. Uh, so it's all very kind of surreal of what <laughs> happened to the town. And I, you know, we, you just accepted that racism was part and parcel. I hope your listeners aren't offended by this, but packy bashing was just something that happened. Oh. And you knew that at certain times of the year, certainly at the end of the school term, there would be a big fight. You know, schools with large white kids would come over. There'd be a huge fight, usually on racial lines. You would have to run very, very fast to make sure you stayed out of it. I gather you were also, as well as the kind of racial grief that you got, you did get called specky for wearing glasses and that's the kind of thing that can be quite cutting it can I mean I had so I've got terrible eyesight I used to wear these really thick glasses so I used to get called jam jars and specky all the time at school I wasn't really somebody who took much care of what I looked like I you know makeup and clothes and hair really just bypassed me so I was just yeah I was the girl with the monobrow and big glasses and as my as my husband likes to tell me because my husband and I were at school together and he said you just look like ugly Betty that was it and he t he's, he's actually got a photograph of me from school which he's got pinned on the wall because uh, my husband and I didn't marry until we were in our 30s and our kids often say well, why do you get together at school and he said did you know what she looked like at school so he's got this big photo of me and he said she obviously she was so the most unapproachable uninterested girl in school he said you know she was 
top of her form, complete nerd. If you ever approached her for anything, she was up for a fight and she looked like ugly Betty. So no, it wasn't happening at school. You were up for a fight? Yeah, and it was usually with the boys. If I ever felt that somebody had kind of stepped on my toes, if I felt that somebody had stepped out of line, if I felt that they'd made a comment which was sexist or racist, you know, it, I was up for a fight and I got into a lot of fights at school. I got into trouble, but trouble in the way that I had amazing results at the end of school, but just wouldn't wouldn't bite my tongue when I saw something which I felt was was unacceptable. Was wrong. Was wrong. That's yeah, so and my mum would just say to me, why is it that you're always, you know, why is it your issue? Why can't you just step aside? Why can't you just leave it be? Why does it have to be your problem? And why couldn't you? Because I used to say, well, if it isn't my problem, whose is it? And if everybody took the same decision of saying, well, it's not my problem, I'll just sit this one out, nobody would ever do anything. Wow. And so therefore, I'm not prepared to sit it out, you know, and, and she still said it. I mean, even when I went into politics, she, my mum was hugely against my decision to enter politics. And I used to say to her, if not me, then who, mum? And if not now, then when? These are the two statements I make to her all the time. I mean, I speak to her in Urdu and, you know, I would say to her, you know, agar me nahi to kon, agar ab nahi to kab. I'd say to her, tell me the answer to this, mum, because are you saying to me that it's, you know, we have to be so selfish and so cowardly that it's always about me and mine rather than actually it's the right thing to do. You talked about how your father kind of gradually climbed a kind of socioeconomic ladder as he moved from, you know, working in a factory to being a bus conductor and a taxi driver and into his own business. And one of the things that's fascinated people is the tradition of Asian families which have supported Margaret Thatcher and the idea of her supporting small business people. I gather your mum was a supporter of Margaret Thatcher, but your father voted Labour. I'm wondering about the politics that you were growing up in in your house. So my dad comes from a, a really really poor family I mean incredibly poor family parts of the house would fall down in the Punjab when it rained whereas my mum relatively comes from a middle class family and my mum is like the ultimate tiger mummy aspirational pushy mum so she was very ambitious and she loved this kind of story of Margaret Thatcher this greengrocer's daughter who'd made it to, to, to prime minister and she loved the way she looked and she loved the way she spoke and she loved the authority around her whereas I think my dad was just a trade union man from being in the mills and he went eventually from being a mill worker to a mill owner but I don't think that ever left him so, yeah, we had really interesting conversations around the around the dinner table. Interesting or heated? Interesting, because I think Dad had no choice but to really <laughs> go along with, you know, these incredibly opinionated six women now around the table. And, and all of us have turned out very differently, you know, even our politics now. I remember being in government and finding my elder sister on uh, had decided to park herself on a picket line when the teachers were on strike <laughs> just saying seriously you're going to do this you know where I'm in the coalition government and you're about to go on a picket line and I remember having a really heated argument with her the wonderful thing about growing up and even now is that there are so many opinions and each one of us is prepared to make an argument to make sure that our opinion is the valid one have you ever changed your opinion on the basis of one of your siblings or parents disagreeing with you and that's where the challenge is for us because none of us 
ever decides that we were wrong. <laughs> and that's why often when we have disagreements and discussions, I always say, I don't know why we have these discussions, because at the end of it, nobody ever backs down. Nobody ever says, yeah, actually, you know, I think you were right on this. When did you first get involved in politics then? Low-level politics, I would call it student politics, I was involved in. Where was From this? about 16 Dewsbury College back in the day. Um, I was vice president of the Students' Union. So, you know, politics was always there, although my younger sister now was saying that she was recently clearing out old school books. She said she was going through them and she'd written about uh, one of her siblings and apparently she'd interviewed one of her siblings, which was, was me apparently, and she'd put in there at the age of nine, when my sister grows up, she's going to be prime minister. So something must have triggered her at the age of nine, at which point I must have been 15, 14, 15. Did you remember wanting to be prime minister? No. And I don't ever remember that interview or that conversation or even wanting uh, to be in politics at that stage. So from, you know, being in student politics at Dewsbury College to actually deciding to run to be an MP in, it was in Dewsbury, wasn't it? Yes, it was. In 2005. What's the journey in between from one to the other? So I followed my mum's path, went on to become a lawyer, married the man that she chose for me. In the end, um, after having quite a successful legal career, gave it up, divorced the man that she chose for me and restarted a new life really in my 30s. I think most of my 20s and early 30s were taken up with lots and lots of volunteering. I was involved with the Racial Justice Committee at uh, the Joseph Rowntree Trust and Racial Justice Quality Councils. I think really what formed me was the colour of my skin, what radicalised me was the colour of my skin, what shaped my politics was around racial justice, about you know equality, equal worth and value. But yet a lot of my 20s and 30s were also spent building up a business, you know, earning a living, in quite a, I suppose, now looking back on it, odd and traumatic marriage, I had probably what you could only be described as a very early midlife crisis in my 30s when I I just felt that Britain, I felt we had won the battles or most of the battles for equal value. I felt as a British Asian, I felt quite comfortable being in Britain. I felt we were heading in the right direction. This is in the 1990s, wasn't it? Late 90s, early noughties and, and felt that social mobility, you know, we'd all be successors of this great social mobility story. We'd become professionals, bought houses in the nice part of town. You know, we're even daft enough to go out and buy, you know, second classic cars and all of that kind of stuff, nice holidays. And then September the 11th happened and it suddenly changed everything about my identity. At that moment, I stopped being a British Asian and I suddenly became a British Muslim. And it was almost as if we'd been set back to zero and said, right, now you can start all over again and fight these battles all over again about who you are and what you are and where you belong. And we'd grown up in a wonderfully plural uh, Muslim household. Um, we have very strong Shia connections, very strong Sunni connections. We'd had access to the local Tabliki Jamaat Diobandi Mosque. Our parents had really kind of said, pick whatever bits of it that you want. And being Muslim had never been an issue, either at home or uh, the professional world that I inhabited. And then suddenly... It became the thing that identified me. You see, you see, suddenly, I want to go back to 2005 when you were running that campaign, because that's when I first really noticed you. And I remember seeing you on the news, and it was a tough campaign. I don't think many people realise just how tough it is to stand as, a, as an MP, especially as a woman. And I remember seeing you know, a group of local you know, Muslim Asian men hassling you as you were out canvassing. And all these issues were brought up about the fact that you were divorced. You know, They were making a thing about what kind of Muslim you were. Mm -hmm. 
What was it like? Well, general election 2005 in Dewsbury was a bizarre experience because there there were so many different aspects of my identity that, that were up for question. So in traditional areas where we would return strong conservative votes, I had people on the doorstep saying, I'm not going to vote for a PACI. I'm sorry, I can't vote for you because of who you are. And it was that bluntly put. But in a way, you kind of thought, well, at least I know where I stand. And then in the traditional Muslim communities where I'd been born and raised, and I had really been a good girl, you know, I'd kind of kept my head down, even during all the kind of trauma of of personal lives, I'd I'd managed to kind of keep a steady uh, exterior. There were conversations about whether it was appropriate for Muslim women to be in leadership positions. And so I always say, you know, I was too white for half of them and too female for the other. And really, it wasn't, I, was, I wasn't going to be able to do anything about either of them. So it was really bruising. And my Labour opponent at the time played to all of this. Which is also significant because one of the big issues which people have talked about a lot, going back to 1988 and the Satanic Verses row, was the way that in some of these northern towns which had large Labour voting Asian Muslim communities, there was a blind eye turned to a lot of the divisions, a lot of the female oppression, subsequent to the sexual grooming as long as the vote was was turning out and you seem to have been caught in the middle of it to some extent. I think what was fascinating for me was that my opponent was Asian too, he was Muslim. And I remember one incident specifically where it was an, a community event and the men and women were segregated and I decided to go to the men's hall and as I walked in he stood in my way and said this is a men's hall you're not allowed in here. And I just remember rolling my eyes at him and somebody who was with me just kind of pushed him to one side and we walked in and says, you know, grow up, stop being an idiot. But I just remember thinking this is so difficult because there's still he, he's playing to this sense of, you know, Muslim women shouldn't be in leadership positions. I remember on the day that the result came out, on the night that the result came out, uh, we got the result in the early hours of the morning. I'd done that typical optimistic thing of, we're going to win Dewsbury. So we had loads of national media there because I'd managed to convince them this was going to be a conservative gain after I don't know how many decades. And uh, as we walked out, I was met by quite a large group of Asian men who booed me out of the town hall. And I remember walking out and this boo went up and my dad was stood next to me and he put his arm around me and he said, are you all right? And in that moment, you think, I was all right until you asked me I was all right. Dad, you, you didn't need to ask me I was all right. And this camera was thrust in my face and this journalist says, you know, how do you feel? I just remember welling up and thinking, I'm going to cry on national TV. This is all I'm ever going to be remembered for. And I just remember thinking, what, how the hell do you think I feel? You know, this is two in the morning, I'm, you know, three in the morning, whatever it was, I'm boom, being booed by a whole bunch of people have just lost an election I haven't seen my child for you know nearly two weeks and I, I just remember saying at that time that however much it sticks in people's throat that a working class brown Muslim woman would like to stand in a leadership position you know whether you're white or Muslim or whoever you are and it sticks in your throat well it's now happened and there's no going back from this. I also wonder if it's given you the strength because of what you experienced back then to deal with the the sort of hostility you get now around, you know, Islamophobia, even though it was coming from other Muslims at the time? Well, I, I mean, I was, uh, you, you may remember, I was egged by uh, members of extremist groups in Luton when yes, I was out were, campaigning. And they told me that I wasn't an appropriate Muslim because I wasn't dressed properly. And I, you know, and, and I remember, you know, everybody said, oh, you know, let's call the police and walk away. And I remember getting so angry. It was one of those moments saying, if not me, then whom? And I turned on, on my heel and walked towards them. I went, how dare you speak yes. to me like this? And I ended up having a confrontation with them. 
And I now think, you know, occasionally when I got all the trolls and I get, the, you know, sections of the party being, you know, terribly <laughs> Islamophobic and nasty about various things. I just think you guys haven't got a clue how many battles I've fought to get here. This is not going to make me go away. You know, I've been literally been in physical altercations from the age of about 14. I'm not going to I'm not going to back away from a fight if I think it's the right fight to have. What really came across at the time was your personal bravery and your commitment. And when David Cameron gave you a peerage, which enabled you to then come into government, I wonder if there was a part of you that thought, maybe I should have run again as an MP and given it another shot to get in an elected way. There was for a very long time. I was really uncomfortable. I felt I was in the wrong place. I felt that my style of politics wasn't suited to the House of Lords. I remember being on the front bench and uh, I remember being um, at the dispatch box and uh, and being quite confrontational. I mean, I was back in lawyer phase. You know, this was, I was cross-examining at, at the box. And I remember one of my colleagues tugging at my dress and saying, I just think you should just, stop that now. <laughs> this is not the way she, things she are done here. She took my dress and she said to me, this is not the way we do things in the House of Lords. I think there's a gentler form of politics in the House of Lords. It was a much older house. It was a it was a, a, a less frantic house. I mean, I was young and eager. No, you were 36. I was 36. I was the baby of the house. I mean, the average age in the House of Lords is, is 69. You know, I remember people chuntering behind me when I took to the dispatch box. You know, I was a an upstart. I was somebody who probably didn't know her place. I was this, you know, working class woman from Yorkshire at the age of 36 who'd arrived straight onto the front bench and straight into the shadow cabinet. And that must have put a lot of backs up. What did David Cameron talk to you about? Because he obviously wanted you there and wanted you very publicly. And I don't know whether you felt ambivalent about whether you were, dare I say, a bit of window dressing for the Conservative Party. So D David and I had worked together for a number of years before he appointed me to the House of Lords and we'd been out and we'd campaigned together. We'd been in big town hall meetings where we'd had very frank conversations. There was an authenticity in the engagement that we were having with communities. It wasn't all that samosas and tea and, oh, we have the same values and let's shake hands and can you vote for us and we'll come to your mosque. I mean, it really was genuine, authentic, robust, sometimes quite fractious, but it was a genuine engagement. And I think he found that quite fascinating. It was a different form of politics. In the run-up to the election, in the run-up to the 2010 election, I effectively became his warm-up act at rally after rally after rally, where, you know, we'd kind of get the crowd going. And ultimately, I'm a campaigner. That That's really what he saw. What surprises me is that David was very clearly aware that I was rooted in communities, that I was not prepared to hold my peace when I believed in something, that I was going to be true to myself, that I was outspoken, I was opinionated. But why he expected when I got into government, I'd, I'd suddenly have like an opinion bypass and become some kind of placid, placid member of the cabinet, I'm not sure. And I think he found... You know, I thought he enjoyed, and I sincerely think he did enjoy, the fact that there was a robust debate in shadow cabinet, uh, which is what I first came into. But I think eventually it was the fact that maybe I, I was too authentic or too outspoken for, for the relationship to continue in the way that it did. When would you say it went I think off? The, I think the Munich speech was a moment of 
split. Remind us. Um, so in 2011, I did a speech which said Islamophobia had passed the dinner table test. He wasn't comfortable with that speech. And remind us what you meant by that. The, the kind of overt, you know, packy bashing and racism that I'd grown up with within the 70s and 80s was probably much easier to deal with. But what I was seeing in terms of this new form of racism, Islamophobia, was that it was found in editorial rooms, in think tanks, in policy circles, in political parties. And yes, respectable dinner tables where people would sit around in very genteel surroundings talking about how they viewed their Muslim neighbours. And you presumably were at a dinner party like this. I saw this over and over again. I would sit there where people would have conversations about Islam and Muslims and then turn to me and then say, oh, of course, Islam is a peaceful religion. And I think, have you suddenly discovered I'm in the room? You know, and if I wasn't in the room, where would this conversation have gone? I sat in too many rooms where too many conversations happened about a community and those conversations were misunderstood did at best try, and malicious at worst. Did you presume you tried to have these conversations privately with both of the prime minister and, and in cabinet before you made that Munich speech? Um, and and he, I had, but I think the sense was that it hadn't been properly cleared. And I think what was meant by that was that lots of people hadn't had their hands on it and had managed to, hadn't managed to kind of squash it. And I remember on the day that I did that speech, it was in Leicester. So I'd briefed the speech out. It had hit the front pages. Downing Street then went into overdrive and said this hadn't been cleared. And they wanted to start changing the speech, even bits that had already been briefed and were now in the public domain. I wasn't happy to try and change the speech at that stage. And it couldn't be pulled. I remember my husband ringing up, who was in Yorkshire at the time, and he drove down to Leicester, which I, I hadn't realised he was going to do. And he just walked in and said to the team, look, I need everybody out. I just need to speak to her. And he said to me, look, you've wanted to do this speech for years. You've seen this growth of Islamophobia. You've talked to me about how you worry about how pernicious it is and where it's starting to take hold. And, and he said, and you believe in it? And I said, I do. And he said, well, you've never, ever stepped away before. So you're just going to shoot yourself out to the noise and just go in there and just be yourself. And then whatever the consequences, we'll, we'll deal with it. And I think it was that moment where... I suppose he helped me find my voice again because I'd been battered literally for 24 hours in the run-up to that speech to change it, to pull it, to, you know, to amend it. To, and I, I, you know, I was starting to dither because the pressure was so overwhelming. And presumably you knew it was a tipping point once you got getting that pressure. Like if you give this speech, something will, I don't know, have broken in your relationship with the party to which you declared your loyalty. Or I think it was with the leader of the party. And I think broader than that, I think I'd, I'd had my card marked by that point then. Because oh, really? I was, ba yeah, because I think I was basically saying, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. Even when you tell me to, to, to back off and, you know, spout nonsense or the nonsense, I'm going to remain true to myself. Because if I start to sell out in, you know, within the first six months of my government career, I'm just going to do nothing else but keep selling out. And I can't do that. I have to remain true to myself because I, you know, politics, Samira, is a awful, godless, soulless world. You know, why would you enter this world? It is nasty. It is lonely. And I thought to myself, if I'm down here in London, miles away from my family, I'm missing out on all the quality time of my kids growing up. You know, I'm hated and loathed by loads of members of the public. And I could be out in a private sector job, you know, having a much better quality of life than this. Then I'm going to make it count. And the only way you make it count is by remaining true to yourself 
and and treating each day that you have in that privileged position of authority a day to try and make a difference rather than a day to survive so you can work your way to the next job. You are very honest about Islamophobia within the Conservative Party. You called for an inquiry. You spoke out in the past about the party's morally indefensible position on the Israel-Gaza war in 2014. People think, but how come you could make your peace with them all those years? What was so different in 2010? During 2007 to 2014, which was my time in shadow cabinet and cabinet, I fought from within. So I was never making my peace. I was just making my peace publicly. Occasionally things would get leaked and, you know, rows that I'd had internally would become public. And I didn't do that. So there was a lot of leaking that was done about me when I was in cabinet and shadow cabinet. Do you know who that was? Um, I have, you know, look, I, I, I can't, you know, I've got my suspicions, but I can't yeah. prove it. So I'm not going to say it. I think post 2014, I simply was saying in public what I'd been saying in private. So it was no shock to any of my colleagues. I mean, the issue around, you know, having changing the face and the faces within the party, changing, making sure we have more diverse people coming into the party, making sure that we have a diverse conservative headquarters, which is truly representative of of all of Britain's all of this was was work that I was doing both as a chairman then the work that I did I mean in the foreign office you know one of the things I talked about consistently was this thing that I called Heineken diplomacy the diplomacy that reaches the parts that other diplomacy cannot reach i.e let's find Brits who have deep connections language cultural understandings of places around the world and let's make sure there are diplomats rather than the man from Oxford who's our man overseas and there was quite an interesting change in the recruitment around the foreign commonwealth office, which was presumably you're saying that dates to around the time that you were trying to push this thinking. Yeah, I was constantly pushing it. So there was a huge amount of black Asian minority ethnic talent in the lower echelons of the foreign office. But once we got into the senior civil service, there seemed to be almost a, a point where they'd be filtered out. And what, when I started looking at the recruitment processes, what I realised was that they didn't quite fit our mould. So, so everything we were doing in our recruitment process was encouraging people to behave like our man from Oxford, who was our man overseas. And I was saying, that's exactly what we shouldn't be doing. What we have is this concept, what I kept calling Heineken diplomacy, use difference for better diplomacy, rather than turning them all into clones of Sir Humphrey, because that's not going to give us great diplomacy. I want to take you back a step, because, you know, you've talked so much about the importance of being authentic and honest, and there came a time when you had to go public and break with doing things within the party because you felt it wasn't being listened to. And going back to that election campaign when you ran as an MP, one of the accusations made was that there was homophobic stuff in the campaign leaflets you put out designed to appeal to a kind of conservative Muslim electorate. How do you look back on that? And was it a regret? A huge regret. And it's something that I've apologised for. And it's something that I have taken ownership of. That was the first election campaign that I had ever fought. And most of my literature was written by my campaign team and my election agent. And I was led by that. And I just so it wasn't felt what you believed? It, no, I was led by what I, what I was being told would work in this constituency. And I really feel that had I had more experience at that time, I would have said, hold on a minute, this is not the way I want to fight an election campaign. Having said that, I still felt it was my campaign. I'd put my name to it. It was my leaflet. And I have to take ownership for what was said in that campaign. I went back on a journey of where I felt I had learned my homophobia. You know, at what point had I realised that being gay was wrong? At what point did I think I had to pass a judgment on it? At what point did I think that Section 28 was a good thing to have in schools? Sex was never spoken about at home. 
It was never spoken about in the masjids or the madrasas and the mosques. I mean, never mind gay sex. She didn't even talk about straight sex. And the first time I started to kind of understand issues around sexuality and sexuality in the public domain was in the party. It was acceptable to be homophobic within the Conservative Party. And I say that I learned my homophobia in the religion of the Conservative Party. So what was fascinating was that in many ways it was actually conservative politics that framed my homophobia rather than religion that framed my homophobia. I think for me, this journey doesn't just end with saying, well, I got it wrong and I'm sorry for that. This journey has to then project forwards for me. And one of the things that I'm involved in at the moment is researching a documentary, which will be coming out later on this year, around how to be Muslim and gay. And it's fascinating, the, con the issues around intersectionality, the stuff that I'm hearing from people who aren't just struggling with their Muslimness of being gay, but actually their gayness of being Muslim and how in both communities they're fighting these battles about saying, I am who I am and can you not subject your version of my identity onto me, but allow me to be myself. I've got a different question that sort of connects to that. And I speak as a woman myself of Indian Muslim heritage. Every so often you have these dilemmas about how you dress and how it's going to be seen. And you walked into your first cabinet meeting in a shalvar kameez. And that is a really big decision, I think, for any woman to make. Why did you choose to do it? And what reaction did you get? So for me, it probably wasn't as big a decision until after I'd taken it and I'd realised what a big decision it was. So you remember the coalition took ages to get together. Yes. It wasn't just we fought the election the next day we knew who was going to be prime minister. And we'd had this exhausting campaign and I hadn't been shopping for, I think, a year. And I just remember waking up on the morning of the cabinet, opening up my wardrobe, because the whole I don't do clothes thing is still there in my life. It really is the last thing on my mind. And my younger sister would always get my shalwar kameezas made for me. She's, she's great with design and fashion. And it was the only thing I had in my wardrobe, which was new and pressed. So I thought, okay, well, I'll wear that then. At no point did it occur to me that this was going to be probably one of the biggest political moments walking down Downing Street. A statement. Because I wear shalwar kameez anyway. And because I think for years in the Conservative Party, I'd worn shalwar kameez, I'd worn it at the dispatch box in the summer, I'd worn saris and all sorts of things to balls and dinners and fundraisers. It just wasn't a big deal for me because I wore these clothes anyway. But it was only as I started walking down Downing Street that all these photographers... At first I realised, oh my God, I didn't realise there were so many photographers there. And then it was, can you take your coat off? And I thought, wow, they're actually... They have probably seen me in shalwar kameez for the first time, even though the whole of you know my cabinet colleagues have seen me in shalwar kameez lots of times. And so it was that moment where I suppose it was just me being me. I think the upshot of that was, yes, lots of people kind of said, well, you actually owned your own identity. But I also had lots of young, you know, Asian girls saying, you do realise my dad now gives me grief because every time I say to him, no, I can't wear shalwar kameez to work, he says, she wears it to work, she wears oh, it to Downing Street. And so in a way, I'm not sure I kind of helped the cause for a lot of younger well, Asian yeah, women. Well, you've given a good explanation <laughs> of why it wasn't that thought through a statement. I mean, if I give you my comparison, I remember I used to wear the shalwar kameez to sixth form. And I remember my brother saying to me, you're brave. But it was like a statement saying I'm traditional, even though I didn't mean it that way. It was part of me just trying to say, well, I'm, I'm a British Asian. And then when I worked on the Today programme as a researcher, when I was a news trainee, I remember I used to wear shavar sometimes. And I look back and I, I am actually amazed I did it because this was the early 90s. And I, I, am, I wonder what they thought of me. You know, people like Rod Little was the deputy editor. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I sometimes think I'm not sure if I should have thought more carefully. Um, and yet all these things matter, and they matter in a way for a Muslim woman, in a way that they don't matter. You know, it's that sort of that double intersectionality, isn't it? It of is. Of the burden of being Asian and the burden of being Muslim and, um, and being a woman as well, a triple burden. It is, but I also think that if you're comfortable in that, as long as it's an authentic version of you, then there's no reason why we shouldn't embrace all aspects of who we are. And I certainly I felt during the early Cameron era, this was something that was absolutely not questioned or frowned upon. Maybe it wasn't there in somebody else's mind. I never what, felt the though? sense that it was ever questioned. I wonder if the big difference would have been if you wore um, a hijab, because I feel that's... Yeah. Even yeah. though it's, it's very acceptable generally yeah. in public life now, um, and I'm a few years older than you, what has been striking for me has been the growth of people wearing the hijab. As a, and it, it is a visual symbol, isn't it? Because it's a statement of a kind. Yeah, I think the only time I ever wore the the kind of hijab or a, a, some sort of a head covering during my time in government was when I went to see the Pope. Oh, well, you have to, don't you? Exactly. All the Catholics so kind of do too. There was a moment when, having never really veiled, I veiled when I, uh, when I led a, a delegation to the, uh, to the Vatican. The decision to resign from cabinet over the Israel-Gaza conflict, how did you decide that? I mean, my resignation was probably the hardest decision I've ever had to make because the consequences of that I knew would be felt in so many different ways. You know, there was my personal relationship with David. One of the things he finds most difficult to deal with was he thought we had a friendship which went beyond just working as colleagues and that you know, why would I do this to him? I think he, he took it quite personally. But I also know that there was a lot of work that I was doing in government which would, and did, stop once I left. All the work that we'd done on, you know, Islamophobia, for example, you know, I set up the cross-government working group on anti-Muslim hatred. I was the first one to uh, bring forward the concept of a monitoring organisation, subsequently funded the first monitoring organisation, um, founded, set up Remembering Srebrenica, you know, did the, uh, I suppose, a rip-off of the big lunch and set up the big iftar. There were so many initiatives that were being set up. In fact, often now my colleagues will talk about them at the dispatch box as to what the government is doing on issues around uh, Muslim communities. And every project they talk about is one that I set up right back in 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14. So, you know, it almost feels like nothing new happens after that. Lots of work did come to come to a halt, and, and, and that did worry me. But I, at that moment in time, I'd spent nearly three weeks speaking to colleagues, speaking to the Prime Minister. Our policy on Gaza made no sense. So I was the Minister for Human Rights, I was the Minister for the UN, I was the Minister for the International Criminal Court, had spent years going around the world advocating this you know, clear human rights policy that Britain had. And then it suddenly seemed that when we were dealing with this war in Gaza, Everything we believed in, British values, human rights, international justice, accountability, was just shelved. It was almost as if the rules didn't apply anymore. And, and I could make no sense of what this was about. And I also realised very quickly that not only were we not prepared to do anything about stopping what was going on in Gaza now, not only were we not even prepared to find the words to condemn what was going on in Gaza, we had no political will to do anything about it afterwards. 
So we abstained on a Human Rights Council resolution on accountability for war crimes on both sides. Post the Gaza conflict, we didn't even take part in it. We had no political will to rebuild Gaza. Uh, we made noises about settlements, but we did absolutely nothing to stop them. And as far as the illegal East, settlements, of course, yeah. whatever we said publicly about the two-state solution, the window of opportunity for the two-state solution was closing. I think it's now closed. And we were simply standing by with the rhetoric of a policy, which was simply a fig leaf, knowing that the reality on the ground was changing and we were going to do absolutely nothing about it. Um, and I think this is a huge injustice uh, of which we are a part. And I was not prepared to put my name to it. Even though this was the most amazing job to sit at the cabinet table, you know, the little girl who was brought up in a tiny house in Yorkshire who made it to the top table, it wasn't more important than being true to myself. And I haven't looked back at that day with regret, not for a single moment. It was absolutely the right thing to do. It was a way of saying, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. And no amount of power or position is ever going to corrupt who I am. People look at the divisions and the toxic level of political discourse in Britain now. And a lot of them blame David Cameron for holding that EU referendum. Never mind whether or not he ever thought he'd have to hold one because of what he thought the election result might be. Do you blame him for holding that referendum? I blame him for holding a referendum too soon. Had we spent a decade educating people about Europe, had we spent a decade not playing to the far right and the anti-Europe, sentiment in the way that we did and had we made it clear that this was going to be a grown-up debate about the pros and cons of being within the European Union rather than some bizarre nationalistic racist debate which is what it became which meant even people like me who were Eurosceptic found themselves voting Remain because I couldn't sign up to that campaign then maybe we could have held a referendum but to do it in the way that we did without the thought being put into it, and so quickly after a 2015 election where we didn't have the time to, to build support for a genuine grown-up discussion on this issue, I think was a huge mistake. You've talked about how your parents were building a house in Punjab the way that you know white Brits might save for a home in Spain to retire to, and your mother saying that you might need a place, you know, the family might need a place to go to. Um, how do you feel about that whole idea now? The very Because I know my parents felt the same in the 70s when Britain seemed very hostile. They, they, they wanted to think about the idea that they might have to go back to India, which I couldn't understand. Mm. Do you feel that it seems more I, I, I was now? like you. Uh, I used to think these were ridiculous arguments that were my, my parents were making. Why would, wh you know, where was home? Where were they ever going to go back, inverted commas, to? And yet for the first time, you know, I, I've, I've now said that, you know, approaching 50, I, I'm worrying my mum's worry. I feel Britain's gone backwards. I've, I feel it's hostile. The direction of politics worries me. The discourse in our newspapers worries me. And the discrimination, which is in some ways much more sophisticated and pernicious than it was when we were growing up, deeply disturbs me. And yet, if I, the one thing we haven't talked about explicitly is the flip side to that, which is when there are terrorist attacks in this country by self-styled Islamists, people say, look, this problem hasn't gone away and it's not being solved by talking about Islamophobia. What do you say? 
I remember when I was in government, I laid out very clearly what I think we should do to deal with this issue of terrorism. And my clear argument was that we should do it without exceptionalizing a community. You deal with what the challenge is rather than, you know, if you've got 10 people who are involved in criminal activity, you don't go out and, 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 and criminalize the rest of the community. I always sensed that the positions that government has taken have been ideological rather than pragmatic. And it's when those positions have been ideological that they've managed to alienate large sections of British Muslim communities. I write about this in extensive detail. You know, when people say, well, Muslims have got a victimhood mentality and, and they feel that, uh, you know, how dare they feel that they're the only ones that are treated in this way. And I give a whole list of ways in which in government we exceptionalise British Muslim communities and we continue to do so in policy making now. I think what concerns me about the whole war on terrorism is that underpinning it all is, is this question of loyalty, where almost every British Muslim has to now take a loyalty test. You know, do they condemn terrorism? Well, of course they condemn terrorism. They could be subjected to it just like anybody else. You know, do they feel British enough? Do they ascribe to British values? And that really sticks in my throat because I have two grandfathers, both my maternal and paternal grandfather, who served in the British Indian Army. They were out there on the front line prepared to give their life for this country and they hadn't even hit these shores. In fact, they were part of a colonised nation and they were prepared to give their life for this country. You know, I've had parents who have worked their back off for years to create, of course, a life for themselves, but opportunity for others as well. I've served my country at the top table. I'm a privy councillor. I'm a member of the establishment. And if after all of that we still have to take a loyalty test simply because a few individuals who may happen to share the faith of a billion people, of which I am one, have gone out and committed the most horrendous violence against our country. And for that reason, I am therefore collectively accountable and I have to take a loyalty test. And I, I just will not take that loyalty test anymore. So I'll take you back finally to the little girl who said, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? Which got you into politics. What are you going to do now? Well, I'm, uh, I'm back in business. I'm back in um, academia. I'm pro-vice-chancellor of a university. I'm kind of writing. Uh, and I'm desperately trying to escape politics. But somehow, you know, politics won't let me escape. Because that little girl, I think, still sits somewhere deep inside me saying, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? And I spend a lot of time building new, you know, the next generation of politicians because it is a tiring space and I really, really hope that at some point I can hand over the baton and say it's for the next generation to fight now. Saida Wasi, thank you so much. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer was Farah Jasset. Do subscribe and we'd love it if you'd rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.